Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, this week, um, we're going to delve into not four or five topics, but we're going to deep dive <laughs> through all the nitty gritty, break down what I consider to be one of the best prestige dramas ever made. Yeah. Um, it came out back in 2007 during the height of the prestige drama, um, peak TV, golden age of TV era, whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it was compared alongside the likes of, you know, your The Sopranos, um, your Breaking Bads, uh, those type of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my opinion, one of the best of that era, if not the best of that era, yeah, was AMC's Mad Men, mm-hmm. uh, which really catapulted the network AMC, which at that point in time, didn't have Breaking Bad and didn't have The Walking Dead yet. Um, Mad Men was his first real shot at proving that he could do original programming. Uh, obviously, The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad um, lifted it to another stratosphere, made it a very important cable channel. But Mad Men was the pinnacle of that, obviously, mm-hmm. alongside Breaking Bad. Yeah. Um, and during that particular era with, you know, The Wire was out on HBO, um, Breaking Bad was competing with its sister show, Mad Men, on the same network. Um, those to me, those three shows, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, mm. Matt, uh, and NY were, in my opinion, the, <laughs> the, the holy trinity yeah. of prestige dramas or what we've come to know as prestige dramas. It wasn't known as prestige dramas then. Like, it was just like a really high quality drama we've never seen before, you know, in the, in the vein of The Sopranos. But now we call it prestige dramas. Um, what was your experience with uh, Mad Men when it was still airing? Ooh. Um, I do remember, I think I jumped on board Mad Men maybe midway through season one, right? When it first mm, came mm. out. Um, well, I can't remember what year that was exactly. Um, but yeah, but, you know, people were talking about like the look and the feel of it and the suit. And I think like the way season one was kind of structured and kind of written was meant to draw kind of viewers in, right? Like yep, it yep. just gave you just enough mystery about the whole thing. You have, you know, John Hamm as this like handsome, animatic kind of ad man in this incredibly kind of glamorous uh, mm. uh, fairy tale of, of the advertising industry back in the 60s, you know? Yep. And that definitely kind of drew me in. I think also at the time, I personally was toying with the idea of, of entering that industry. Um, mm, yeah. Interesting, okay. Yeah, so I... Um, you know, so I checked it out, right? And I think it wasn't till maybe midway through season two or maybe the beginning of season three that I kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. I can't, I, I felt like I kind of had a hold on where this was going necessarily. Yep. And then uh, I, it kind of dropped off my radar. So it's only been in like, oh man, I don't know. When when did you give, give this assignment? Probably... And beginning la- of the year? Beginning of the year? And yeah. last year or beginning of the year, yeah. So th- uh, close to close to end of last year, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like December-ish, I think you were you were saying, okay, let's let's do Mad Men. I was like, sure. Mm. Right? Like I never kind of like gave it the kind of full shot. So I've uh, I've sunk in the requisite hours to finish up all seven seasons uh, yes. of it. Um, um yeah. Mad Men, I think, to me, was a bit of a red-headed stepchild of uh, prestige drama elites, yes. in, in my opinion, mm-hmm. I feel. 
Um, a lot of people say that The Wire and Breaking Bad, and and I, I would actually classify Better Call Saul as part of Breaking Bad because it is. Yeah. Um, I know I'm cheating lah, but like I'm I'm considering both shows as one, uh, as one of the elites. So I always felt like those shows were a little bit easier to get into because of the crime drama element, which mm-hmm. is very typical for American TV shows, right? Yeah. Um, if you look at some of the most popular TV shows in the world, they are all gangster slash crime dramas. It's a very easy to hook it's a very easy hook yeah you know your 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 ozarks or your picky blinders which are lesser versions of you know um already famous crime dramas um still succeed because they are stylish crime dramas yeah madman <laughs> on the other hand was was a workplace drama slash comedy um set in the 60s uh, in an era that most of us um the millennials i'm talking about mm. went around in or looked down upon um and it featured um an industry that most of us aren't familiar with or would think of as, you know, like dry or boring to watch. There isn't any, you know, when you think about exciting television, you don't think about um, advertising execs uh, sitting around a conference room delivering pitches, right? Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's just a very tough sell, you know? <laughs> and I think that's why I felt like Mad Men sort of fell under the radar. Um, not to say that it isn't culturally or critically appreciated it it obviously certainly is you know but i find it rare to find people amongst my circle like you know actually like you know discerning people who watch the wire and stuff like that yeah like most of them don't watch mad men do you, do you find that to be true also oh um i i think it's kind of very fun. i i do know let, let's see i knew how do you watch mad men kind of religiously right when he was around uh, sure, yeah, yeah. That yeah. I kind of remember. But like in the greater circle of friends, very few. And interestingly enough, a lot of my friends who are in the ad industry never quite gave Mad Men the chance. I think it hit a bit mm-hmm. too close to home, despite it mm. kind of being a period piece for them to enjoy it for what it was. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that general pattern is something that I observed as well. Yeah, um, so if you're like a, a regular listener, behold, this is not going to be a typical episode where we delve into different topics. Like we'll be delving to one topic and breaking it down in many, many, many parts. Um, this is obviously, I think, most similar to our Dune episode of Behold, yeah. where we're essentially just talking about one large story and breaking down uh, the many parts of it. So what are we going to be talking about on, on, on Behold? So obviously, we're going to be talking about you know, one of the greatest prestige dramas ever created by Matthew Weiner. We're going to deep dive into the uniformly phenomenal performances in its ensemble. Yep. We're going to talk about its best episodes. We're going to talk about its psychological study of shaping identity mm-hmm. um, alongside its many dense themes about the dawn of American consumerism yeah. and how advertising uh, co-ops shifting cultural norms. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Mad Men, let me give you a little breakdown. Um, <laughs> Mad Men begins in the fictional Sterling Cooper advertising agency on Madison Avenue in Manhattan in New York. Um, and later on, it shifts to Sterling Cooper Draper Price, yes. um, located at the Time Life building in 6th Avenue. So according to the pilot episode, the phrase Mad Men was a slang term coined in the 1950s by advertisers working on Madison Avenue. Mm-hmm. To refer to themselves as mad, you know, being short for Madison, uh, and you know, it just became uh, a common slang for um, advertising execs in Madison Avenue uh, around that period. Um, the series's main character is, as you mentioned, in this enigmatic, charismatic advertising exec uh, called Don Draper, played by John Hamm, who is initially the talented creative director at Sterling Cooper. Mm-hmm. He is 
erratic and mysterious, but is widely regarded throughout the advertising world as a kind of a genius. Yeah. Um, some of the most iconic advertising campaigns in history are shown to be his creation in this, you know, um, alternate universe here. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, Don becomes a founding partner at uh, Sterling Cooper Draper Price, but begins a struggle as his, you know, highly calculated identity. Um, it is revealed fairly early on that his identity is false. Yeah. Um, and his calculated identity, this thing that he shaped for years and years and years, falls into a period of decline. The, the plot of the show essentially tracks the people in his personal and professional lives, colleagues, family, as, and friends, etc. And as the series progresses, it depicts the changing moods and social mores of the United States throughout the 1960s, all the way into the Cultural Revolution, or should I say the counter-cultural revolution <laughs> in the late 60s and the early 70s. Um, it has, the show has you know, achieved widespread critical acclaim for its writing, its acting, its directing, its um, lush visual style, its historical authenticity. Um, it's won so many awards, particularly with John Hamm, who year in and year out competed with um, Brian Cranston every year. It was yeah. either him or Brian Cranston for, for an Emmy or Golden Globe. It was, just these two guys is dominating for seven seasons. Um, and you could easily see why. Yeah. Um, I, I myself was never sure who was the better actor when I was watching both shows live, you know, back to back. It's like, mm-hmm. I, I would watch Breaking Bad and be like, damn, Walter White is the best character. And <laughs> I would watch Mad Men and like, damn, like the new ones of uh, Don Draper is unparalleled, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, it is one of the most important shows of the 21st century of the golden age of television. And before we break it down into, piece, in, into you know, its various pieces and all the, all the stuff that makes it great, um, what are your thoughts on on Mad Men overall? Now that you've seen uh, seven seasons over the past uh, over the past few months. Oh man, um, I I think especially now that I have kind of like the fuller picture, right? Like a lot of the the, the characters that I kind of like initially kind of dismissed as as kind of caricatures of themselves. Like really, you have to give them time, right? A lot of them don't come out, kind of come online fully as fully kind of flesh characters with their own kind of motivations uh, and things that you don't see outside of their orbit around Draper uh, and, mm. and and who he is as a person until much later on. I think that, um, you know, um, uh, both uh, Christina Hendricks and, uh, oh no, what's the what's her name who plays Peggy? It just slipped my mind. Uh, Elizabeth Moss. Yeah, Elizabeth, I mean, I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah, Elizabeth Moss, like, fully, fully deserves the nominations that they've gotten both as lead mm. actress and, and outstanding supporting actress. Um, because they they turn out to be at times uh, more compelling characters than Draper himself, right? As this kind mm. of like, as he kind of devolves, not devolves, like um, as he kind of unravels into his own boogeyman as, as the seasons go by. You know, uh, there's something mm-hmm. they grow from strength to strength, and as their position kind of rises or their star kind of rises within the industry itself. Like that makes a fascinating kind of counterpoint to Draper's eventual, um, eventual fall, and you know uh, that whole kind of like season six, season seven, um, climb back to the top again, right? Um, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. so much of that is amazing in its own right, and it's hard not to draw comparisons to Breaking Bad, but it does feel like the uh, ensemble cast in Mad Men does feature more widely and better uh, than... Yeah, it's more similar to The Sopranos, actually. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly, right? Like, it it has a more even kind of distribution of screen time amongst 
uh, all the cast that are there, whether or not they are kind of like permanent cast members or like long featuring ones mm-hmm. as well, uh, which I which I kind of love, right? Because by the time I'm extremely invested in a wide yep. number of people uh, and maybe a bit more so than necessarily what we got in Breaking Bad. Um, yes, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so like having seen it in its entirety... I do feel it is definitely like it stands with the big tree, right? Of 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 prestige, uh, of TV of the time, uh, for mm-hmm. sure. I find it incredibly hard to rank, <laughs> uh, yeah, any of the three individually because they're kind of all their own different monsters. But I do feel there were moments in time where the seasons felt uneven, and a lot of mm. that had to do, I think, perhaps with my perception of what. Dawn's journey could have been instead of mm. what is actually shown. Like uh, a lot of it had to do with managing kind of my own expectations about, okay, he's getting better here. Oh, oh no, he's going back there. And like that mirrored itself in how I felt about the writing overall. Like every time Dawn goes back to like, you know, his old ways or he slips into, you know, some bad habits that you thought that he kind of overcame, it was extremely frustrating, right? Uh, and I'm not sure whether it's me as an audience perceiving as the writing kind of like falling back into the same old tropes again and revisiting the same thing over again, or my frustration with Dawn's character overall, like slipping back into that again, you know? So that's something I think like it would take me a while to kind of unpack and process that given that, you know, I think I just saw the last episode of season seven over the weekend. Uh, Mm. Yeah, so... I'm still at a point whereby like there's a ton of there's a couple hundred hours of 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 you know madman living in my head and me trying to like unpick all of that is going to be going to take a while uh but yeah I fully have no regrets spending that amount of time catching up on this extremely brilliant show in its own right um yes um to me like uh, what you saw as maybe a deficit I saw as a strength okay. because I thought Don Draper's character arc, or at least the cyclical nature of his character arc, mm-hmm. uh, was what the show was about. Mad Men was a show about men who didn't or couldn't change, yeah. and about the women who could. Mm. Um, I think no matter times, no, no matter how many times the men of Sterling Cooper, all of them, tried, the series always sent them back to their self-destructive routines that they knew best, I think. Yeah. Those patterns could be anything from, you know, the liquor in their desk drawers to the women they slept with to the larger worldviews that kept them anchored to their own past. And yeah. more often than not, it ensured that they sank. I think looking back to the pilot of Mad Men, you know, um, which was like more than a decade ago, <laughs> um, it is Almost hilarious because the show knew from the get-go, unlike most pilots, knew from the get-go what it wanted Don Draper to be. Yeah. Um, you know, that that quote is, you know, Don was uh, sitting by the bar, I'll do it old-fashioned. It's that's his motto, you know. Um on the flip side, you know, we see more traditional character arcs for Peggy and Joan, people who are struggling to break out of their molds yeah. and the glass ceilings that have been built for them. And that was the big contrast between uh the gendered roles uh in the show. Um, I thought the this depiction of Don Draper as, as this story of a man who desperately wanted to transform himself and never could was excellent. Mad Men's very first scene, right? You yes. know, it's Don Draper sitting in that restaurant booth surrounded by smoke and yeah. other Mad Men who make their living selling American dreams and he's kind of scribbling pictures of for Lucky Strike a napkin and he grills a waiter about his favorite secret band, like marveling, you know, at, at the man's unshakable loyalty and he orders another drink and that's when he says, you know, I'll do this again, old-fashioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
that is the show in a nutshell. The <laughs> fact that this is Dawn's drink of choice is a little on the nose, but in, in true Madman fashion, that detail is also meticulously chosen. Um, the more we get to know Dawn, the man, the constructed myth, the self-destructive legend, the less surprising it is that he returns again and again yeah. to being an old-fashioned man. Um, Dawn's journey over seven seasons of Madman is one of a man who wanted with all his might to be a different person, something made literal in the first season when it uh-huh. was revealed that quote-unquote <laughs> Dawn was a big facsimile, I guess, hiding Dick Whitman, the, the scared boy who grew up in a brothel and yeah. crafted himself a new sleeker identity after the Korean War. Um, and Madman's real, I think, stroke of genius was it always brought Dawn to the brink of real change, only to yank him back again. Um, he gives up drinking, gives in to drinking, gives it up, comes back again, uh, comes back to it all over again, and he expresses interest in being a more involved parent and then blinks in surprise when his daughter Sally appears to have grown up without him <laughs> noticing. Yeah. Um, Betty becomes sick of his shit and presses for a divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, he trades her for a more modern version of the model wife, yeah. Megan, mm-hmm. which also ends in divorce. He mentors Peggy more by accident than design, to be, to be honest. And <laughs> yeah. He falls apart, stumbles back up, crumbles all over again, waiting for someone usually some women, to come and put him back together. Yeah. Um, this is a real accurate depiction of humanity here. Yes. Like, people don't change. Um, Matthew Weiner, it might not surprise you, was one of the hit writers of The Sopranos, another show that was very adamant that people don't change. Yeah. Um, similar to how James Gandolfini portrayed Tony Soprano, who was always on the brink of change, of being a better person, but he never did. He always gave in to his um, default impulses. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people really are. It's not a particularly hopeful view of the world, but it is ultimately a truthful view of the world, you know? Yeah. Um, so much of Mad Men is not just about Dawn, though. I think every episode is packed with surprisingly really, really, really funny, almost workplace sitcom-type moments <laughs> alongside its dramatic moments, you yeah. know? Um, there are things like a guy getting his foot chopped off by a lawnmower that is just... So absurdly sitcom-y, yeah. but so funny that like you kind of just accept it. Um, the period accurate clothes, you know, the costuming always won awards and it deserves to. The hairstyle and the music, um, often um, imaginative, hilarious, and deeply moving performances. Um, screenwriting that depicts the complexities and contradictions of the human personality with, I think, a lot more insight and empathy than 99% of all the American series to date. Mm-hmm. It's a drama about how individuals are and are not affected by local, national, or international history that's constantly unfolding around them. It's this great psychodrama about how our personalities are shaped by our parents, our lovers, our friends, our bosses, everyone else we know, as well as the people we've never met, the politicians, the civil rights leaders, athletes, movie stars, culture in general, the the icons who inspire and entertain and all of that. Um, It has this unusually strong affinity for mythology spirituality, religion, psychoanalysis, pop psychology, literature, poetry, cinema, um, and all the other means which, by which you know, the human experience is transformed into a narrative. And at every level, every scene, the episodes, the seasons, in total, I think, is quite masterful in its construction and filled with major and minor bits of foreshadowing and recollection and lines and images seeming to kind of be in conversation with each other um, throughout the seasons or throughout time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it managed, manages to be all these things and others as it entertains. And it's really entertaining. It's exciting. It's sexy, sometimes sad. Yeah. But above all else, I think the thing that really hooked me and some of my friends who love the show is that 
it's funny. It's a show that inflicts so much darkness on its characters. Yeah. And it's, I think it's obligated to offer a bit of light as compensation. Otherwise, we wouldn't go near it. Um, <laughs> I've, been, I, I've been watching or re-watching Mad Men, I think, close to um, over a decade right now. I've seen every episode about five times at least. Yeah. Uh, and almost every time I notice new things, sometimes they are micro. Like, you know, when the New Yorkers go to California, they always come back a bit sunburned. And sometimes it's the macro. Um, certain behavior patterns in characters are mirrored by what's happening in the nation over time. Mm-hmm. More thematic parallels. Yeah. And while the series, I think, deals with history head on, it mostly avoids the temptation to explain what it all quote-unquote meant. I think it prefers to view the biggest events obliquely. Uh, and cutting their potency by having characters hear the big news late or at a moment when their own personal problems seem much larger. And I think this rings true to life. Sometimes, you know, like, it's... Sometimes it's, it's just the way it is. Like, the Kennedy assassination may or may not be impactful to you, for example, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what's going on in your life. Um, and the show likes letting its characters be. Um, fascinated at it clearly is by you know Freud and Young and the Bible and tarot cards I think it's ultimately envy theory yeah it's about human behavior occurring in the moment it doesn't explain it observes and it's not about the period it's about the question mark and that's what I really 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 loved about the show it's like that line that Don delivers to Peggy in the suitcase where he says (laughs) people do things full stop you know um, and that's great. Um, what else did you love about Mad Men? You know, um, the, uh, outside of its themes and all, like what about the ensemble, the costuming, oh, man. Um, different character arcs and things like that? You know? uh, the, I, the costuming and the set, I think, uh, in particular, really, really stand out. Like it does feel extremely on point as far as it goes. Like the, 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 just the tailoring, the suits, the dresses and all of that very reminiscent of that era or, you know, or at least what a lot of us would imagine from that era, right? Like, it feels like its own ad. The entire kind of, like, franchise feels like its own ad when it comes to the fashion of what the people are kind of wearing. Um, yeah, you know? yep. And, and uh, I, I kind of love that, right? Like, everyone is kind of like, well, more or less, right? The majority of them are beautiful and have impeccable style and you know, um, it, it just feels very kind of lived in. Uh, mm-hmm. And it it's very difficult to, like, the the cinematography and the editing and the pacing of it is extremely consistent throughout all seven yep. seasons, uh, which I, I thoroughly appreciate as well. But what sticks out mm-hmm. to me are these moments of almost magic realism that are peppered around uh, yep. that, uh, you know, just add a nuance to it that... Uh, much in the same way that the comedy provides relief for us at, at this kind of like dire points, right? Uh, yeah. But the magical realism bit, I think the one that sticks out to me the most is when um, like Megan leaves leaves the company to pursue acting mm. and then Don presses the lift and then he looks down the lift shaft, right? For example, like one of those moments yep. like that, like again, it is not it's un unsubtle uh forewarning for sure. But at the same mm-hmm. time, like it's just strange kind of moments like that. Or things yep. like uh, uh Roger's kind of like LSD trip, his first LSD trip with Jane 
and just the yes, way they chose yeah. to kind of play that out. Like, there's this moments of artistry that are above beyond, like, the mainstay of what you expect from the show that makes it mm. kind of, like, extra special because they don't overdo it. Like, there's a point to showing all of that uh, that adds value to what you're watching. It adds an emotional layer there where that you can't quite shake that this, as much as it feels grounded and realistic, it's also extremely fairy tale, right? Yeah. Uh, in 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 and fairy tale more like in the grim fairy tale version rather than like what we understand from a Disney fairy tale. Uh, it's I, it's about the myth of America. Yes. That's what the fairy tale is. Yeah, and yeah. and I absolutely love it whenever these moments culminate or rather kind of like precipitate out within the story structure. Um, just yeah. to give you something to kind of extra to kind of chew upon while you are grappling with the mistakes people are just constantly making on screen. Mm, yes, yes. Um, 100% agree with you. I've, what I really actually really liked about Mad Men at a time of prestige drama and serialized television yeah. was that I feel like Mad Men never quite relied on a twist or never relied on cliffhangers or yeah. never relied on you know the super exciting shootouts or conflicts and... I, and, and it proved to me that this is not a bad thing, you know. Yeah. Um, the season one twist that Don Draper was actually Dick Whitman was a big reveal, but the most shocking part was that the show didn't make a big deal out of it. Yeah. Um, it wasn't this game-changing thing. True to character, like Don just brushes off Pete Campbell's discovery of his stolen identity. And yeah. So does their boss, Bert Cooper. Don's identity crisis is a big part of the show and one of his defining character traits. But by staying true to his characters and to the fact that it's a show about flawed people, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. Mad Men stood out amongst all the other shows that were trying to desperately draw viewers in with kind of sensationalism. Another thing is, if you took any character for Mad Men and line him or her out, you know, <laughs> you, you knew every single one of them to the micro detail. Yes. Every character in Mad Men of this large ensemble, from the big ones like Don and Roger and Pete and Joan, um, to Peggy, uh, to even you know, um, the smaller ones, like Lane Harris or whatever, yeah. you feel like you know and understand every character to the point where you're right there with them. Yeah. And no matter how deeply flawed and awful they are, some of them are so awful and we're looking at you, Pete. Um, <laughs> yes. You love them and you care about what happens to them. Yeah. The same is true with like um, Ken Cosgrove or Harry Kane or Paul Kinsey or, or Ted Cho, you know, like yeah. there's so many great characters here. There is no... Walt Jr., for example, who was just, you know, Walt Jr. from season one to whenever Breaking Bad ended, right? Yeah, and yes, he was just, it's just about the breakfast, was, yeah. Correct, yeah. And and I'm not even going to delve into the relationship aspects yet because we'll talk about Don and Peggy and all of that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, I love that this was a primarily episodic show. Yes. Uh, in an era when it wasn't cool to be episodic, every single episode felt like a short story. Um, Matthew Binner and his team of writers definitely took advantage of these captivating characters and their incredible actors. And they made a lot of episodes that focus on secondary characters and some that only focus on the main cast. So each episode feels like a short story in a book collection that ties together in the end, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, standout episodes like Three Sundays or The Suitcase or Signal 30 and stuff like that were all very um, con- contained short stories. Yeah. Um, the show's style 
is probably its most obvious aspects. Um, the costumes, the makeup, the hair, the sets, it's all a work of art. Mm-hmm. It's set in the 1960s and some of it in the 70s and it would have been easy for Mad Men to go cheesy, but it didn't. Yeah. With a great team that did a lot of research, the show felt more real because the world looked just as real as the characters felt, I think. Mm-hmm. Mad Men did also did something that a lot of shows did not do. It made characters look bad. Um, specifically in the earlier seasons, um, Peggy isn't hip and doesn't yeah. know how to dress or yeah. style her hair. Mm-hmm. But instead of the typical just, you know, throwing a pair of glasses on the actress and revealing how beautiful she is when she takes them off, you know, that old cliche. Like, it takes <laughs> time for Peggy to get to know her personal style and confidence. And her character arc is mirrored by her costuming. Yes. Which is great. Universally, the performances are amazing. Um, everyone from John Hamm and Peggy Olsen, which is, um, and Elizabeth Moss, which is the obvious, to your Betty Drapers, to Kernan Shipka in her first role, oh, you know, yeah. your, event- your eventual Sabrina. Um, they were all great. Like, no matter how big or small their roles were. Yeah. Um, this takes place 50 years ago. It's historical and it's an important part of the show, but the mm-hmm. human stories make it very relatable. And as deeper themes of consumerism and capitalism makes it still relevant today because all the points, all the good and bad points of capitalism or consumerism that Madeline brought up has either has just become more fully blown yeah. in, in 2022 right now. You know? Like, nothing has really changed. In, in fact... Some parts of it are worse. Um, sure, there isn't the misogyny or the lack of female execs and opportunities and stuff like that. But, you know, is that really true? Mm-hmm. Um, really? Or is it just hidden? Um, so much about Mad Men really captures me. Um, um, those are like the peripheral things, right? Yeah. But let's delve into the main things. And we can't delve into the main things without talking more about Don Draper. Yes. Like, I, I, you pointed out to me that um, you were frustrated by his, um, I think, lack of growth or lack of a traditional arc that you would see in a show, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I thought that um, rather, on, on the flip side, I thought rather that his uh, lack of growth is sort of the point of the show. Yes. Um, what else uh, did you like or dislike about Don Draper, either in terms of John Hemp's performance or his character moments or arcs and stuff like that, you know? Like, does the, the idea that that Don Draper is not supposed to grow, does it, like, change your opinion of it? Um, I, Okay, certainly, you know, like, having this discussion about his lack of growth over time, right? I think mm-hmm. it also has to do with the fact that the show does promise these moments of, you know, uh, where he's on the precipice of, of, of breakthrough, right? Like, he's not yeah. swimming more, you know, he gets a little bit more sick, he might have TB, and, yep. you know, like, you know, he cuts down on smoking, cuts down on drinking, etc., etc. Like, there are these moments in time where it kind of feels like that. And that's mirror in, you know, maybe like Sterling's like LSD trip where he becomes a bit more enlightened mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. Um, what to me, I think, really highlights the fact that Don Draper as a character is a facsimile, right? Or, or almost like a caricature yep. of itself is sometimes within the conversations that he has mm. in day-to-day, uh, mm, mm. right? Because You're those right. Yep. conversations consist largely of these one-liners that he throws out to them. And the fact mm. that these one-liners or these like kind of dismissive comments that he gives, especially to his creative team, right? Yep. Serve as the end all and be all of the conversation when the yep. conversation actually didn't take... A, a conversation did not take place in the first place. Uh, mm. is very frustrating, right? And it serves to highlight the fact that, like, Don Draper as a person is not kind of fully there. 
right? It's only yep. in these moments with um with Peggy, for example, right? When he is most himself that they actually have good conversations, mm. right? Uh, or, or, or Anna also. Or, or, yeah, Anna. And I think to some extent, maybe, uh, what was that, that, um, stats, stats girl, Miller, uh, to mm. some extent, which was like, kind of like, the start of like, some sort of self-awareness, where he opens up about his past. Uh, yep. There are portions of it, where he opens up to Megan, but that is like few and far between and those moments of vulnerability get covered up very quickly because of the drama within their marriage itself. <clears throat> mm-hmm. yeah. You know, um, but like, I think truly it has to do uh, with like this iteration of Draper that we get to see the biggest part of, right? Uh, it has to do when he is alone with Peggy and they have these very terse, if but extremely powerful conversations with each other. Right, mm. uh, a lot of it devolves into a kind of like a screaming match at some point in time, but it gives yep. us the meat and a peek into the actual character of Dick Whitman slash Don Draper, uh, as mm-hmm. he is as a person, as opposed to this put on facade that he carries every day when he walks into the office. Uh, yes, yeah, Don is an ad that he created for himself. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's all like kind of these little little things that reinforce. You know, um, the 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 myth of Don Draper, right? The mythos behind this ad man who, you know, uh, has has is self made. Uh, it's mm. it's fascinating that he goes from kind of like a mysterious background to eventually claiming the fact that he's from the Boondocks uh, as part yep. of his story in a very mm-hmm. unnervingly comfortable and smooth way. Where and mm. and no one questions it, right? Because like that's just part of the the appeal uh, and, and the enigma of, of uh, Draper. Yeah, uh, Don Draper is this giant mirror to white male America, like, isn't it? Like, the, the myth of America, what it, sh- what it pretends to be, what it shapes itself. Yeah. Um, the myth-making that is made for itself, that is Don. And, and, and I love that he is not just a fully fleshed-out character, uh, and we, we know him quite intimately, but he also has this double-edged uh, this double layer uh, as like this this allegory for America. And that's yeah. re- that's really really great. We were talking about um, Peggy's costuming, right? Yes. What I loved most about Don Draper was that he never changed his style. Um, <laughs> even as everyone around him embraced the new trends of an evolving world, even with, when they were going to the seventies, right? Yeah. You know, um, he just chose chose not to change, and that is quite true of his character as well. It's all very purposeful, you know, everything from his style to his affectations yeah. to his uh, dialogue as you said it's all very purposeful writing don is at the same time also one of the most deeply felt tv characters ever i think you know it's, he's right up there with your tony sopranos yeah. and your walter whites and jesse pigments and all of that and his performance reveals more layers every time i watch it but at some point madman made it clear that don's slow and steady breakdown was never going to end and he was never going to change yeah and which leads to i'm jumping ahead a bit but sure. which leads to i think one of the Greatest series finales I've ever seen. <laughs> Don runs away to California. Yes. His place of choice to do drugs with hippies and escape himself. Yes. He's trying to find some semblance of peace and change. But last we see of him is this placid ex- expression as he attempts meditation, you know. And you think, wow, he's achieved a sense of zen, a sense of, zen uh-huh. a sense of calmness, a sense of himself. Then the series cuts to the famous 1971 I Like to Buy the World a Coke ad, mm-hmm. which plays Mad Men out for good. Yeah. Um, in many interviews 
afterwards, Wiener was very explicit in saying that the sh- uh, then was very explicit in saying that the show uh, within the world of the show, Don Draper created that app, yeah, which confirms a truth about Don uh, that the show never shied away from. Here is a man who wants to be better, but in times of trouble and in times of crisis <laughs> and self-reflection, he will always go back to what he already knows. Yeah. And I found that to be a perfect ending for the show. The truth about Don couldn't have been surprising, I think, uh, to anyone who, sh- who watched the show's first episode. And, mm-hmm. you know, he also takes in the first episode a seemingly transformative experience. Yeah. And what does he do? He turns it into an ad. Mm-hmm. The, the big true moment of the pilot, in fact, <laughs> comes when, you know, like Don snacks the Lucky Strike uh, account by appealing to a room of powerful men with a very simple pitch. Yeah. Advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Um, it's the smell of a new car. It's freedom. It's billboard on the side of the road that screams reassurance that whatever you're doing is okay. Yeah. You are okay. Uh, all Don Draper wanted to be was happy, but all Don knew how to do was create facsimiles of happiness. Yes. So he never found a way to make a real thing. Uh, on the flip side, his female counterparts against much greater odds than Don Draper did actually achieved what he wanted. Yep. You know? um, Peggy is arguably the, 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 the show's... Not arguably. He, she is the Jesse Pinkman to his Walter White. Oh. The, most, the se- mm-hmm. second most important character of the show, right? Um, most dynamic storyline of the show, in, in my opinion, from the start. You know? um, the pilot sort of only shows glimmers of what's to come for Peggy, but her journey is the most purposefully progressive Mad Men ever did. And thanks to Elizabeth Moss who did not ever win an Emmy for Peggy Olsen, which is a fucking crime. Um, she only ever won an Emmy for The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Uh, but in my opinion, she's owed seven Emmys for all seven seasons of Mad Men. Absolutely. Um, she started as Dawn's secretary, but quickly revealed uh, a wit and a cleverness and a drive that made her most... Uh, that made her Dawn's most obvious creative successor, right? Mm-hmm. And eventually, she carved out her own place in a sort of relentlessly misogynistic advertising industry by kind of sheer force of will yeah. and undeniably sharper instincts. And one of the most interesting aspects of Peggy or Peggy's character arc is that she didn't necessarily want to be a pioneer. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the feeling that if she were around today, she might even deride affirmative action as unnecessary or, or pitiful uh, and denigrates the value of hard work. Yeah. But by the simple virtue of being a woman who pushed past a constant onslaught of kind of sexist bullshit to get what she wanted, Peggy grew into this force that dared the men in the show to reckon with her brilliance and smirked when she got the better of them. Yeah. Um, the first season of Mad Men made plain the parallels between Peggy's story of discovering her creative voice and Dawn having done the same, and the series continued to develop her trajectory into something more complex and fascinating, more, more so even than Dawn's, you know. Um, did Peggy's arc surprise you, thrill you? Like, what do you love about Peggy Olsen, which I think is almost the Kim Wexler of Mad Men, you know? Oh, man. Um, I love Peggy's arc because I feel that it feels like the most straightforward. Um, yep. Kind of that. Like, she takes every setback, every lesson, every encounter, every experience in her stride, right? And uses mm. that to propel her forward. Uh, I think yep. the easiest sort of comparison that we can kind of make, or rather the most regular kind of comparison can make, is between Peggy and Joan, right? Yeah. Joan's yeah. journey to having everything, right? Both both as a woman, as a professional with, within the sphere of what she's doing, right, is far more complicated and far more winding than, than well, sometimes than necessary, personally, I think. Uh, whereas Peggy as a 
as a mirror to Dawn, right, in different shoes, uh, definitely feels more straightforward and more satisfying um, mm. because of that. And because we are we are following so many characters and all their arcs kind of at the same time, right? Whether it's Dawn's like perpetual cycle, whether it's Pete's kind of like, you know, uh, Pete growing into a monster, basically. Mm. Whether it's like just like Roger floating in the wind. Um, all of that, you know, none of it is as satisfying as what Peggy goes through because it feels hard-worn and well-earned. Um, yep. Both as a, a, a literal thing that she's doing in her career but also in terms of like the amount of time that she spends working through those those you know the objections the rejections um you know and the different like um, poor choices romantically all of those Mm. things like uh eventually culminate into a success story that you are like yeah you know i've been rooting for you since the, the start of that right like you know, fuck Don, fuck all these guys, right? Like yeah. Peggy can have everything that she wants and she's going to get it because, you know, she she's going to learn how to get there. Yes. Um, one of the best images of that ended, I think, season five or was it season six? Um, Peggy leaning on the couch in Don's office as a mirror to the opening credits. Yes. Uh, was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I, this is quite a, an aside. Like, I'm sorry to sidetrack no, no, you, no. but the, the fucking opening credits is one of the best opening credits I've ever seen. Yes. It's, Absolutely. Phenomenal. Like whoever designed that is it still sticks in my head as one of the most memorable opening credits of the prestige drama era. An era which, you know, yeah. frequently did not have opening credits. Like they they just threw that out, you know. Breaking Bad didn't have, well, Breaking Bad had one now, but it was like, you know, three seconds. Same you know? <laughs> same thing with, with the rest of the prestige drama shows. Uh, Mad Men had opening credits and yeah. I appreciated it for that. I would never skip a Mad Men opening no, credit. Yeah, I have never skipped that. I mean, like having binged that, right? Like clearly it would save me collectively a lot of time over that but I've never skipped the credits right there's something yeah. so it it sets the tone every time mm. right and like just the opening theme song is is so kind of like I- iconic um, yep. and yeah for, for some reason like just like you said right it's so well designed you know it's so evocative in terms of like the look and the style of that to the themes mm. of everything that's going on and yeah I haven't skipped a single one and I've I've seen it more than a hundred times, right? Over the last couple of Yep. Months. Yep. Um, on the character side of it, as, as you mentioned about Dawn and Peggy and Peggy and Joan, I think Ro- Roger is also sort of a mirror of, of Dawn. Yeah. Um, he also, to Roger Sterling actually is low-key my favorite character on the show because he's so funny. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. I mean, he's not meant to be like exceptionally deep. Yeah, yeah, but for sure. He's like there as comedic relief a lot. Um, but character-wise also, he falls for this promise of a younger woman, much like Don did, you know. Like both of them fell into the 50s era version, vision <laughs> of a of a happy life, you know, the housewife, 2.5 kids and all that. Yeah. Roger is the first one to break out of it, even before Don does. Yes. Um, he steps ahead of Don. He's divorced again. He gets into LSD culture. He convinces himself he's changed for the better, but discovers when the drugs wear off that he's as miserable as he is before. Um the contrast between Peggy and Don is very interesting. Um, as you were talking about, like both started as secretaries, both are very strong and intelligent, yet their choices diverge completely. Yeah. Um, Peggy breaks the mold and pursues a career, um, and she struggles to maintain meaningful relationships. Joan, on the other hand, succumbs to societal pressure and marries and starts a family, yeah. yet still longs for the professional recognition 
that Peggy has earned. Yes. Um, and I think these conflicts aren't unique to the 60s. They're just very well crystallized by that period. Yes. Um, is this phantomness or is the phantom of happiness? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't exist, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think anybody ended up very happy at the end of uh, Mad Men. And nope. let's talk a little bit about, about Joan now, because I think Joan is very interesting as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Um, watching the first episode of Mad Men, I think this is the most obvious character that Matthew Weiner didn't have plans for. Mm. Um, Joan Holloway. Like, yeah. she's not much more than this, like, sashing column of red strutting through the office and trying to show Peggy the ropes and mm-hmm. you know she assures Peggy that the typewriter might look complicated but uh, <laughs> the man who designed it made it simple enough for a woman to use and then instructs her new hire to go home put a paper bag over her head and assess where her strengths and weaknesses are yeah. uh, and quote unquote be honest um, she's basically the leader of the sorority that is the Sterling Cooper um, stenography pool yeah. and who will be tied the secretary or drooling man who dares cross her but According to Matthew Weiner, Christina Hendricks herself, the actress, made it impossible for him not to give Joan more. Yeah. Uh, you know, what the character herself calls something in between a mother and a waitress in that first episode, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in Hendricks's hands, Joan didn't just show Peggy around. She looked like she was surveying her territory. Like, she, she transcended the scripts, you know. Yeah. Um, she wielded, you know, the smile and swaying hips like well-hood weapons of charm and when somebody pissed her, off, pissed her off, you know, like her eyes are furious, yeah. you know, kind of foreshadowing righteous wrath to come. That was not in the script. That was in the actress. And mm-hmm. soon enough, it became impossible to ignore the fact that, you know, that that Christina Hendrick was too good to be given a minor role. Yeah. And Joan became this thing. Like, Joan was too smart to be satisfied with corralling, corralling lunch orders. And her ambitions grew despite her more, I would say, practical judgment yeah. and morph to leap beyond the men in her life who disappointed or devastated her. If you only knew Joan from the pilot, the fact that the series ends with Joan offering Peggy a partnership in her own production company will be mind-boggling yeah. as, it, as it would be thrilling. Yeah. Um, I think Joan, like Peggy, didn't necessarily set out to become more than what the world told her yeah. she could be. Um, a decently smart girl who can make some men moderately happy someday, but Mad Men nonetheless lifted Joan and Peggy's fight to be taken seriously, a fight that they won mm-hmm. as pointed counterparts to his men who are just stuck in their own um, time loops you know, uh, <laughs> of self-pity and, and self, self-defeat. self you know? um, Yeah, um, I really, really liked Joan. Uh, what about you? Like, what, what do you think about Joan's whole trajectory? Like, This was the only character that I thought wasn't purposeful from the beginning. Like, This is someone that Matthew Weiner wrote for as the show went on. Yeah, I, I think like when we kind of caught up when I was midway through, like, I had just crested past season three, you know, like yep. venturing into new territory for myself, right? I was saying like, yeah, I totally had a change of heart about like Joan and what her character was like. Right. And mm-hmm. I think the point at which that really cemented it for me was when she yep. dresses down Peggy shortly after Peggy fires Joey for the extremely inappropriate uh, mm. cartoon that he draws, right? Like yes, that yes, yeah. really short kind of exchange that the two of them have in Joan's office um, shows Joan's grasp of the an extremely deep understanding of the politics of the office together with like the power play of just generally society um, at that time, right? Where where women stand, where men stand, you know, where, where privilege stands and all of that. Mm-hmm. Like in the few moments there, you know, that you are, you know, you're a big player, power player now and I'm just another helpless secretary. Like, yep. 
so on point. So like kind of amazing. The the conversations that they then have from then on, and a lot of them eventually like kind of like bitching about Megan and, and so on and so forth. Those few cigarettes that they share in behind closed doors in Joan's office, right? Has the camaraderie of it mm. those moments have more camaraderie, right, and comradeship between these two women than yep, all yep. of the drinking and and merrymaking and you know uh, money that's being spent among any of the male characters. And I agree is yeah. that that is amazing. Mm-hmm. The way they're kind of like able to capture that. Like these were two actresses kind of like at the peak of their powers in their understanding of both their characters and their roles within the show. And having mm-hmm. them kind of like flex that was such a joy to watch. Um, yes. You know, a Joan coming into her own and all the very, very difficult decisions that she had to make, the compromises that she had to make along her journey to the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, feel, it, it feels more tragic than Peggy's in a lot of ways. Uh, yes. But yeah. again, like her resilience is, it feels different from Peggy's. Right, like mm. Peggy, hmm, like like Peggy's kind of like hit strong, uh, unrelenting willingness to keep moving forward despite dif- um, uh, despite setbacks or obstacles and all of that feels very different from from kind of like Jones' very cunning and wily and calculated, um, mm. uh, approach to things. Right, despite the show often showing her to be extremely. Um, taken by her own emotions and and the situations that she finds herself with, you know, yep. she always finds that composure. She always comes back to a place of like, uh, um, uh, of of clarity in which to kind of make her moves from there, and that is mm. like, oh wow, it's it's, I mean, Christina Hendricks as Joan, like, is so many hair standing kind of moments from her that when you get that in a particular episode, like I I don't care what happens to the men in those episodes. Right, like, mm. like there's the the rest of the things there are usually not as memorable as those very short scenes that we get to see Joan do her thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, Joan was great. Um, let's talk about someone who's not so great right now, but also a very integral part of the show. Uh, Pete Campbell, who is oh god, sort of like the Christopher Maltesanti of Mad Men. <laughs> he is slimy, yeah, um, selfish, and generally speaking, a very awful guy, but. Somehow also one of the best parts of the show. Yes. If not necessarily being a good person, but he is one of the most entertaining parts of the show. And yeah. yet as he gets worse with every season, there is some part of you that sort of cares about him and wants to see the rare occasions where his good side comes out. Yeah. And that complexity is wholly down to not just the rifling, but by Vincent Carfizer, who you kind of forget that they're separate people, that he 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 just <laughs> loses himself in this role so well. Yeah. Um. I first I encountered Vincent Carfizer as uh in a show called Angel, which is a Buffy spinoff. Mm-hmm. He played uh, Angel's son, and I just never knew he had this kind of like depth to him. You yeah. Know? Um. He also speaks probably the second most quoted line, uh, in the show besides <laughs> that's what the money is for. Yeah. Uh, which we'll, which we'll get to later when we talk about suitcase, <laughs> but, but not great, Bob is something I say a lot for no reason. Yep. And that's because of Vincent <laughs> Kathaiser's delivery of Not Great Bob, which is amazing. Yep. It's one of the best lines the show has ever delivered. Yes. Um, what do you think about Pete Campbell? Oh, God. Um, he is he is unlikable to begin with, right? Yeah. Kind of like self-righteous, you know, has a high horse that he constantly preaches from. 
Uh, there are moments, especially in the first couple of seasons, where you can see why he believes that he has the right to preach from that high horse, right? Like, yep. he, he stands on this soapbox and kind of, like, philosophizes a lot about, like, the moral standing of, like, loyalty and, and, and you know, whether something is right or wrong. And in certain moments, that rings very true because he does make decisions according to that moral compass. But I think Pete Campbell is... Uh, the perfect example of the idea that every compromise leads you to more compromise, right? Mm. With your life. And eventually, some of the things that he preaches against, he falls into, right? Mm. Uh, and when he when it eventually becomes a means to an end for him, yep. uh, that's when you really start to see him tear away at, at this like human skin suit and the monster comes out. Uh, yes. But at the same time, because there's always just enough glimmer of good and compassion and humanity in him, mm -hmm. uh, you're like, oh, okay. You know, there might be some kind of like redemption story there. Yep. Uh, but yeah, man, Pete is skeezy as fuck by the end of this series. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, it is, it is extremely compelling for what I thought at the beginning would be a really kind of like a small side character. Uh, yes. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, he is constantly entertaining. There are certain moments when he gets taken down. Yes. That's always great, you know, when he loses it and says, not great, Bob. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a gif that lives rent-free in my head. Um, his boxing fight with Lane oh in the office yes. is, is uh, probably one of the favorite scenes from like many Mad Men fans. Yep. He is he is so great here. Um, yeah, that was that was Pete. But let's get into probably the show's most compelling dynamic. It's not John and his wife Betty or poor Betty, yeah. um, who I have a lot of sympathy for, and is an important character as well. Yes. But but. John and Peggy is probably the central dynamic of the show that drives it forward. For sure. Um, and that is the core relationship of the show. Um, Peggy starts off the series as Don's secretary and she was chosen because Joe, because Joe knew that Don wouldn't want to sleep with her. Mm. Um, and that although Peggy and Don never have a sexual relationship or date with each, with each other, yeah. their platonic friendship or platonic um, professional relationship yes is the most romantic relationship I've seen on television. <laughs> yeah, we had a discussion about uh, this. The most yes. non-romantic, romantic line ever. Yes, you know, I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life trying to hire you. Uh, Don essentially took Peggy in as a protege, and Don was there for Peggy in one of the worst moments of her life. Um, yeah. the, the surprise Pete Campbell baby, uh, which would be the worst mo moment of any woman's life if you, you know, finding out you're pregnant with Pete Campbell's kid. Oh, yeah. And he guides her through that he guides it throughout her career, even at her toughest moment. He was the only one from the office that knew what happened to Peggy and visited her in the hospital. Yeah. Um, he's also her toughest critic and she's also his toughest critic. Oh, yeah. They are tough on each other because they love each other in a way and their relationship always remains platonic, which makes it more beautiful than any other relationship on the show or in TV in general yeah. just because it, is, it doesn't ever go where you think a typical TV show would, would take you. You know, it mm. it. it almost revels in their platonic respect for each other, that they are mirror images of each other. And, you know, um, as Don explains to Peggy in The Suitcase, <laughs> the main reason why he's never slept with her is not because she's unattractive. It's because she's the first woman that Don has ever took serious, taken seriously or, yeah. or showed respect in, in a professional capacity. And he didn't want to ruin that with Peggy. Yeah. 
Um, their relationship is fantastic and probably the driving force of the show um, right up to their final conversation in the final episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about Don and Peggy? Oh, man. Um, like, the show wouldn't work without that mm. dynamic, right? Oh, would it work as well, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's very difficult. Uh, again, like, what they say behind closed doors to each other when they are alone, right? Mm. When most of it behind closed doors, right, is is some sort of, like... Is something sexy, something you know, uh, uh, illicit, or that's going yeah. on? Um, the few moments behind doors with Peggy and Don are the few moments of like bare truth uh, mm. that is available, right? Yeah. And I think what catches me the most is the for the first time she addresses him as Don, right? Mm. I, I think it was a pep talk given to 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 Peggy by Joan, where she just like you have to like address him as your ego before he's going to start taking in an ego. The moment she says Dawn, right? I mean, John Hammond in some amazing kind of like face acting has this yep. has this kind of like twinge almost, but also a look of recognition for like, okay, okay, like this this is different now. Like there, there's something like moving ahead in this conversation that it's going to be. And mm-hmm. while I don't remember what that actual conversation was like, uh, mm-hmm. those moments are very precious and very important because they are so rare in like the literal kind of like uh, runtime of the entire series, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and there are just these bare moments where, you know, Don is most himself as is Peggy yeah. amidst yeah. all you know the shiny print ads and all the taglines and all of that. Uh, you get the truest of two people, and that is a rarity mm. in the madman world, and that. Uh, gives us enough to kind of like not power through necessarily like the rest of it is enjoyable as well but those those are powerful scenes uh, mm-hmm. that I feel like are incredibly important and you see that it's always in these scenes where they are negotiating with each other they are fighting with each other they are they are looking for common ground to bridge some sort of gap in understanding or ideas uh, where they are the most full as characters as opposed to all the workplace nonsense that they have right in 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 like the daytime in the open door Mm -hmm. office right where he's throwing money in her face you know Mm -hmm. or she's just like swallowing her swallowing her pride and all of that yeah uh yeah is it's it's those incredibly like emotionally charged but at the same time tender moments that lend this dynamic more meat than almost any other relationship in the show Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we delve into the final topic, which will be our favorite episode, <laughs> I want to talk about the writing on the show, which I think is something that sticks out probably most prominently, even more than the costuming or the performances. Oh yeah, for sure. The write, the writing is so thick with both visual metaphor and um symbolic metaphors yeah. and and underseen metaphors you know it's everything on the show means something from a pile of papers out in the focus in the background to a character's thigh to a moment when joan takes off her bra and you see you know those those marks on her rib cage you know sort of symbolic of the constraints that have been put on her yeah. the show is written and produced i think very much like a book it's it's often a literary journey because it delves into these characters very deeply and every episode feels like a new chapter or every scene a new page and every season and episode of Mad Men has a, has a general theme yeah. and, and the writers leave a lot up to the viewers to interpret. Mm-hmm. It's not 
spoon feeding you um, its themes, but it shows you just enough that you understand at least on a subliminal level what's happening, even if you can't articulate it. You know, it's yeah. it's obviously obviously its major themes is identity and memory, yeah, gender and sexuality in in the sixties, alcoholism, counterculture, um, everything is there both in the foreground and in the background. You know, what are your favorite aspects of um, Madman's writing or the themes that it was trying to develop over the course of seven seasons. Oh man, uh, that is a lot to kind of tackle. I think I mm. think let's go with scenes. Some of my favorite scenes, yeah, uh, that I've had. The one that stands out to me the most, I think, might be a little bit surprising, but it is the scene mm. where Sally in a tantrum at the office yeah. runs out and is picked up by Megan after she falls. Mm, yes. Oh my god. Um, for some reason that scene really, really strikes me, right? That looks like something out of an ad. And in that mm. lingering moment where where, you know, um Megan is uh is kind of kneeling down and comforting Sally and the rest of the women in Dawn's life, right? From Dr. Miller yep. to to Joan, um, you know, and, and all of them are kind of like standing there watching this happen. That was such a poignant scene, right? And that sets up like a big part of you know, going into the rest of the season and Don's relationship with Megan, uh, setting up yet another cycle of destruction for him and his relationships in his life, right? Mm. Um, but wow, uh, that to me was an extremely, extremely powerful scene. Of course, yes. you know, the conversation in the suitcase, for sure, that is mm. one of the most emotionally charged, rawest scene that we get uh, as well. I love mm. that. Uh, I love the moments of uh dawn in california yes um, yeah with the strange royalty princess whatever thing that the the, mm-hmm. the uber rich right <laughs> yeah, that uber, yeah that was such a strange sequence of scenes um that felt surreal and and kind of added to to the magical realism like i was talking about earlier as well i really really love those um, yes. There's so many kind yeah. of like great scenes there, um, yeah. That that just you know uh, are simply kind of stand out and like live in my mind constantly for how beautiful and poignant and meaningful and layered they are. Um, mm-hmm. More so than like the I mean the themes are very very strong right and very consistent throughout all the writing and very period yeah. accurate. Uh, I mm. love whenever you know they bring in something from that time period that was uh, of of natural national or global importance, you know the assassination mm. of JFK, uh, Marilyn Monroe dying, uh, the mm. assassination, moon of, landing, the yeah. moon landing, all of that, right? Being worked into this historical fiction, yeah, uh, is yep. Yep. is so well done and feels so natural. Uh, mm. that you have to you have to like applaud it, right? Like because so many shows don't do that any justice um, yeah and it makes it feel very real right as a part of or at least the possibility that this happened sometime in our yes. past yeah. yeah there are certain moments in history that changes public consciousness or how we think of ourselves and things like that right the assassination the moon landing stuff like that um, and it's very organic to the show that they have to consider this because these are people who have to consider public consciousness and how to adapt Selling strategies, a very consumeristic way to view it, yeah. uh, to shifting cultural identities alongside their own personal identities, you know. And I think like this this whole idea of identity is the show's like overriding late motif, right? Yeah. Um, Don Roper's identity fraud is probably the biggest one la, during the Korean War, you know. He 
he it's he's this guy who's been living a life for a long time. He's built to be a loner, and over the course of all these many seasons, we see him carry this existential angst through a fairy tale of his own creation. You know, um, and the show also takes you into um, the identity crafted to sell things. Um, it takes us behind the scenes of the branding of American icons like Lucky Strike Cigarettes and Hilton Hotels and Life Cereal to, to tell us um, not how the products themselves were created, but how their very sexy, very magical images were dreamed up. You know? yeah. um, and in this way, like, the show puts us in the, in, the, in the feet, in the shoes of Don Draper, obsessed with selling an image rather than tending to what lies underneath. Yeah. Um, and that shows Draper's fatal flaw, right? It's his lack of psychological awareness. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a weird contradiction because he is at once perfectly tuned into the desires of America yeah. while entirely out of touch with his own character. Um, and that's the key theme of Mad Men. And uh, the key theme of Mad Men is like no one is ever who they appear to be. Yeah. Each one from Peggy to Joan to Roger to everyone it has is filled with thwarted ambition and frustrated dreams. Uh, none more so than Don Draper himself, who's... Mm-hmm. Uh, Whose closet, which is gradually revealed over, se- over the seasons, is is sort of filled with uh, proverbial skeletons. And yeah, we we've, t- we've touched upon you know gender and sexuality in the nineteen sixties. It's probably the most the sexism in particular is probably almost the the most suffocating and the least fun to watch oh, aspect yeah. of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also the force against which the most compelling female characters struggle and yes. the opposition that defines them. So they couldn't be there without honestly depicting the sexism of their era. The, the interaction with everyday misogyny and condescension, you know, the, the housewife whose who's, um, psychologist reports to her husband, <laughs> the, the ad woman who's, who's cut out uh, of the after hours wheeling and dealing, it gives the characters purpose and shape. This is, this is all great, you know, it deals with the alcoholism of the era, which was not seen as unusual, you know. Yeah. Um, three martini lunches and keeping a bottle in your desk is not unusual. Yeah. It, it also delves into the counterculture of the late 60s and the 70s, which is actually one of the most mm-hmm. interesting points of Mad Men as a series when Don and all these old-timers are forced to reckon with the fact that their time is done. Yeah. They are gone, you know. Um, every character almost depicts a sort of version or an archetype of, of people you see in the 60s, which is not to say that they are one-dimensional at all, yes. but... You know, John is the ever-charming salesman who is always well-groomed and well-witted. Roger Sterling is from the previous generation, the greatest generation, the war generation, right? Who, who created empires in the fifties, but uh, slowly in decline as as time progresses. Uh, Pete actually signifies the youngsters who are actively in pursuit of greatness yeah. and the ways to rise on the corporate ladder. Peggy and Joan represent the women who make it big mm-hmm. due to sheer talent, but are still sidelined due to the predominant sexism of the era. Yeah. Betty. It's a classic 60s woman whose ultimate aim was to maintain their beauty, marry into a rich household, and become the perfect housewife. Yeah. Um, Sally represents the boomer generation who grew up with poor parenting but turned out to be independent. Um, they're all archetypes but not caricatures, and that's what I really love about the show. They managed to make these allegorical characters fully fleshed out on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something a lot of shows do. They, they uh, don't do very well because they run into the problem of you know making character symbols mm. rather than actual people, whereas everyone here is an actual person. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, any, any like final thoughts before you delve into uh, the best episodes of the show? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, sorry. Uh, you... Yeah, final thoughts before best episodes of the show? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I had I had this kind of like passing thought where I was talking about yep. uh, 
I was thinking about the whole idea of like, uh, you know, family names and how that usually, I mean, or, or traditionally tied in to the idea mm. of like the jobs that you do, right? Yeah, and yeah. It, it, it was fascinating to me, like the whole idea of Don as a draper, right? Uh, I know yep. it's not his actually, but he that that's what he does. Like he 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 drapes, you know, these wonderful, colorful things over 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 products, right? Or the idea mm-hmm. that that Sterling has been born with a silver spoon in his mouth, etc., etc. You know, or mm-hmm. the fact that Lane Price is the money guy, and eventually his downfall is the money. You know, mm. it was just one of those kind of strange coincidences that that had niggled at me while I was watching the show. It's like, oh man, I hope that's intentional because it feels too intentional to be like a a, a kind of accident, <laughs> as that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but just like one of the final weird things that popped into my head while watching the series. Awesome. Um. Yeah. Okay. Now let's delve into our favorite episodes of the show, which is the final topic of uh of of this episode. Yeah. Um. What is uh? I'll I'll let you pick. Like, what are your favorite episodes of the show? Oh man. Given that there are just so many. Um, yeah. Um. Okay. Suitcase for sure. All right. Let's let's talk about the suitcase first as as like our number ones, and I would agree. Like the suitcase is, I think, the the pinnacle of what Mad Men was. You know. Yeah. Um, and it it's so great in terms of delving into what we already talked about the Peggy and Don's relationship. Yep. You know, it's this question of how many in the how many people in the world really know you? Um, a handful at best, if you're lucky. You know, um, maybe a spouse or lover or a sibling or a close friend or some combination. Maybe uh, Don Draper is not so fortunate um, through his own choices, right? Yeah. And then through the fickle fate, uh, through the fickle fingers of fate, you know, he's come to believe himself that he's a close book to the world except to the real Don Draper's widow Anna mm-hmm. and with her he felt free to be himself to be vulnerable and sweet Dick Whitman but and not the son of a bitch role that he's adopted in Korea and cultivated in the years since yeah. uh, and without her he feels completely and utterly lost and that's what the suitcase is about but as Peggy points out in the climax right the, yeah. the high points of the show um, Anna isn't the only person who knows Don yeah Peggy knows him and she always has. And maybe because, you know, she can pull him out of his spiral he's been in since his marriage ended. You know, Peggy is probably the most important character to Dot at the moment. Yeah. Um, an argument could be made that the man that Peggy knows so well isn't really him. You might say that Anna knew Dick Whitman yes. and Peggy knows Don Draper. Uh-huh. But it's more complicated than that. Peggy has met Dick. Dick Whitman is the one who visited her in the psych ward after her baby was born. Mm. That wasn't Don Draper. That was Dick Whitman. And he taught her a lesson that he learned from the hobo. The hobo code, you know. Um, Pete tried to tell her the same story while Don was AWOL in California. Yeah. And Peggy shut that down. And after their <laughs> impromptu birthday dinner at the Greek diner, you know, he, <laughs> he casually offers up pieces of the Dick Whitman puzzle. He mentions Korea. Yeah. He mentions Uncle Mac. He mentions his father who died in front of him. Um, getting kicked by a horse, his mother, exec, uh, etc. Yeah. Like Peggy doesn't have the details of the Dick Whitman picture, but she has enough of it. Yes. And more importantly, she knows Don Draper even better than Anna did. You know, she's been his secretary, his protege, his partner, and the closest thing he has to his friend. Um, if anyone can help him through this rough patch, it's Peggy. And this entire hour spent with Peggy and Don crafting an ad or pitch for um, Samsonite. Yeah. Uh, Samsonite, right? Yeah, Samsonite. Um, is probably the greatest insight you'll get into both Don and Peggy and how they interplay with each other. Yep. Um, is that what you loved about the suitcase? Yes, pretty much. Pretty much that's kind of yeah. all of it, right? Like that I think was um, the most insightful culmination of their relationship up to that point 
in the series mm. and that continued to carry through for the re- the remaining three seasons right yes. uh yeah really really love that um yeah i think the other one that i liked as well and interestingly enough it has to do with like the two women that don never sleeps with uh mm. is the one where joan gets served her divorce papers yes yeah um, yep. i can't yep. remember what the the episode is called but yeah that one again right like there is a moment where it's just two people who are playing at their lives, right? At that point in time, right? Like one is, you know, happy, successful kind of ad man with this niggling feeling that what he has is not real or not enough. Uh, mm-hmm. And a woman who is supposed to be kind of like all kind of put together, whose life is yeah. literally falling apart as they both sit there at the bar. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I fucking love that. Uh, that scene I think more so I don't remember what else is in that episode uh, but mm-hmm. also one of my favourite things right where we explore kind of this relationship where the dynamic is vastly different from all of other Don's you know dynamics with women uh, yes in, in the yeah, series. yeah yeah absolutely you know uh, those are two um, of some of the best I think looks at how how Don interacts with I think the two most important women in his life. Yeah, um, agree. Mm-hmm. No offense to Megan or Betty, they're not the most important no, women. It's, no. like, it's not. It's not even Sally, to be honest. It's 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 June and Becky. Yeah. You know? Um, the the scene that always like you know replaced in my head. It's from from the suitcase. Is always their initial argument, right? Yeah. With uh, with Peggy wanting to go off and meet <laughs> her boyfriend, and 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 Don's holding her up in the office and stuff like that, you know. And then they get into this whole argument about glow code and about how. She never gets the credit. He's never said thank you. And then she he says like probably the most iconic line of the show, besides not great, Bob, is yeah. that's what the money is for. Yeah. You know? And that's a fantastic line. But at the same time, also, like Don keeps having this gravitational pull on Peggy. Um, in that Peggy really could have left anytime she wanted, oh, yeah. but she didn't. Yeah. Because I think deep down she actually really wanted to be with him because Peggy's boyfriend at the time, Mark, I think his name was. Oh. <laughs> yes. Really, really doesn't know her the way that Don knows her, and I think that's why Don always, uh, Peggy always gravitates to Don. Yep. You know, all the conversations that they have, um, even even the the, the comedic relief when they found uh, Roger's tape, right, yep. of the of the mem- of the memo that he's making. <laughs> um, it was a fantastic two hander. Uh, and, and some of the best episodes were two handers. Yeah. Um, although one of my favorite episodes also wasn't a two hander. It is uh the ending climax final episode of season three is called Shut the Door Have a Seat. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is Mad Men's attempt to do a heist episode that yep. turned out to be really, really well. Um, <laughs> it's an episode where Don and Roger and a few other key members of, of uh, Sterling Cooper Draper Price left their old agency and attempted to steal their clients and bring it over to a new burgeoning agency that they're making. Yeah. Um, it plays out as probably the best heist episode I've seen on TV, although it really isn't a heist episode, yeah. but it feels like it. Mm-hmm. And it plays out on these various um, scenes of, you know, um, people uh, shutting the door and having a seat. <laughs> uh, one-on-one conversations, you know, some variation of that happens in every scene. Yeah. Whether it's uh, with Don and his wife and kids, or whether it is with Don and Peggy, etc., etc. You know, yeah. um, and, and, and that line that we saw loved also, um, that, that Don says to Peggy, you know, at like this time Peggy is like very upset with Don and... Just you know, not getting credit, feeling undervalued, feeling underappreciated. She leaves and she doesn't want to join this this new uh, rogue agency that they're making. Yeah. And she says that, 
you only value me for my work, etc., etc. And she says that you know, if I say no to your offer right now, you you walk out that door and I'll never see you again. Yeah. At dawn, uh, in his best pitch ever, <laughs> I think. You know, absolutely. Um, says to says to Peggy, um, uh, I'll spend the rest of my life trying to hire you. Yeah. Um, which is the thing that she most wanted to hear. Um, and his whole preamble about the Kennedy assassination, as we were talking about, right? You know how it's changed American consciousness, and no one understands that, but Peggy does. Yeah. And we need Peggy. Um, that was great. Um, Shut the door, have a seat. Is is one of the most, I think, bar none, um, exciting episodes of Mad Men. Don't you think? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I um I was so invested in who they would call, mm. uh, and all of that. I think like at that point in time, I think Pete Campbell was a surprise to me. Uh, or, yeah. or rather, it was kind of like the 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 Trump card situation where I wasn't sure if he was going to because it could really either go either way. Uh, mm-hmm. He was not a surprise. Yep. Bringing in Joan is a stroke of genius, right? And I think like, it's mm-hmm. the first time in the series where uh, the men outright acknowledge her prowess as a, a, a you know, kind of, yeah, as a professional. Uh, yeah. Really, really love that. Yeah, Ken and all that. Bringing Harry into mm. the picture felt strange, but I mean, like, it, it kind of explains itself overall, and that, like, is indicative of, like, the move away from, like, slowly print ad into TV. Uh, mm. All of that. But uh, yeah, super interesting. Um, yeah, still one of the boldest kind of ideas ever, right? Like, Delic yep. Price just fire us. Uh, that I had to pause at that moment. Uh, just to like what wait what um, mm-hmm. you know and 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 all of that how that kind of unfolds and like really as a mid franchise kind of like turning point was brilliant. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Um. Any other episodes that stick out to you? Um. I think now's a good time to talk about the finale, like, which is also obviously one of the most important episodes of every show. Yeah. The f- finale I thought was fantastic, and I've already described why I I thought it was fantastic. The his ending conversations with with Joan, with Peggy, yeah. with his with Betty, with everyone, uh, and the idea that Dawn is finally about to change yet again yeah. on the precipice of breakthrough, and he turns it into the most famous ad in the world, the the Coke ad. Um, what do you think about uh the finale of of the series finale of the show? Oh man, um, the conversation that he has with Peggy, I think yep. here is the. That is the fullness of their relationship across the decade that we follow them with here, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's not as it's not long, it's not winding, it's not in depth in 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 the amount of details that they offer, right? But I think especially oh man, the acting here is just like phenomenal. Um, the kind yep. of like facial expressions, the kind of like intonations of their voices as they are they are they are having this what seems to be a fairly mundane conversation more or less like there's nothing mm-hmm. particularly deep to it really sums up who they are as characters and their relationship over the course of um, everything they're doing uh, even the trajectory of their lives and careers is summed in this um, mm-hmm. is summed up in this in, in this conversation you know um, the conversation yeah. with Joan was heartbreaking um, to mm-hmm. me because that there was a sadness there that I think are both both Joan and Dawn feel like they could have done more for each other, right? Yep. And and in particular, like Dawn never comes to support Joan until you know the Jaguar thing, 
right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and even then, it's too little, too late. Uh, and, and it's kind of like, you know, like he tries to do hand-waving and obviously he doesn't work. Uh, uh, Joan has to make her own decision anyway. Um, yep. You know, but like, this, like he, there is this feeling that they could have, if they had supported each other a bit more, early on mm, right yes um, and, and again going back to that where they were just like talking to each other at the bar right um, right after Joan gets served her papers um, mm-hmm. they have this small conversation about like in the initial period like never cross Joan I was so scared of you you know like mm. Joan and Peggy as the two like most important women in his life that never that power dynamic at the beginning right essentially ruins um, what could possibly have been an incredible partnership from the beginning right because mm-hmm. a lot of the things that Don lacks Joan can fill up it's not even the other partners right we're not even talking about the rest of the men you know whether mm. we're talking about Cooper we're talking about Sterling and that the one who's holding everything up to allow and able Don to to be the best he can professionally is Joan right yes. because they never yeah. kind of fulfill that so that conversation is so laden with not regret necessarily but the possibility of what could have been and again in mm-hmm. a very short conversation that doesn't actually touch on any of that but like only refers to it wow. mm-hmm. I mean like it is the conversations that he has in the finale that are the most important to me um, mm. in terms of like framing my overall experience as someone who has wo- followed like several hundred hours of this story um, yeah yeah, yeah um some of the other like minor but also like great episodes that I want to shout out also is uh season five episode five. It's called Signal Thirty. Uh-huh. It's the one where Lane finally blows his cool and punches out Pete Campbell, yep. which is a fantasy that every Madman fan has. Yep. Um, this episode like you know exposes the private agonies of this man, you know, um, and Lane chases his cherished ideals of being a real American and takes it really badly when his dreams get crushed. Yeah. Um, Ken is writing science fiction here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, Pete is pining for this uh, Scarlett Johansson looking girl in uh, a driving class. Yeah. Uh, Roger chums another redhead who will never be Joan. Yeah. Uh, Don sits at a whorehouse drinking his bad memories away. It's such a great episode. Um, what others that I loved? Uh, the hobo quote from season one, obviously, is a very pivotal moment in Mad Men. Yeah. Uh, it's our first flashback to Dick Whitman yes. and obviously very important to the mythology of the show. But it's an oft-forgotten episode in season four. It's season four, episode three called The Good News. It's where um, a few deeply damaged people spend the final days of 1964 together. Uh-huh. Um, Don is heading out to California to visit Anna. Uh, and then returns east for a weird New Year's adventure with Lane. <laughs> yeah. Um, they they heckle a Japanese monster movie uh, before meeting a couple of uh, lady friends in the village. Yeah. Uh, so many painfully intimate moments. Uh, Dawn painting in the living room with Anna. Uh, Joan throwing roses, roses at Lane. Uh, Dawn slow dancing to old Cape Cop with uh, Anna's proto hippie uh, niece. Yeah. Uh, who is uh, played by fucking Sarah Lance oh, by the yeah. way from Legend, uh, Legends of that. Tomorrow uh, it was so hard to kind of divorce that right I'm like oh my god it's Sarah Lance um, and yeah. that and um, Pete gets involved with oh no what's her face the one that goes to the hospital um, yeah I forgot the name also but yes I remember what you're talking yeah, about yeah. Like, I actually really enjoyed like those couple of episodes where she appears because mm-hmm. you know it's it's um, that that scene in the hospital where she can't remember him, right, is Pete's mm-hmm. realization of what he has become. Uh, mm. And for him to completely s- be able to speak that to what he thinks is a stranger is, is p- that li- those lines are fantastic. Yeah. 
also, yeah. Um, yeah, we're already kind of like running over time, but <laughs> I would like to ask, what is, in your opinion, the best pitches of Mad Men? Okay, we, we've had a discussion about this. Uh, yep. I'm going to say Dawn's is Carousel. Uh, of course, sure. the Codex Carousel. The Codex um, Carousel. Go watch it on YouTube if you haven't seen it. Yeah. His Codex Carousel pitch is tear-jerking in the least. I don't blame Harry for running out of the room crying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was... It, <laughs> It was incredible. He, you know, you're always dealing with clients who want to who want to um, emphasize features, right? Yes. But he's not selling features. He's selling an idea. He's selling a, an emotion. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's not um, a, it's not a spaceship. It's a time a time machine. Yes. That's exactly what a carousel is. It's perfect. It's one of the best pictures I've ever seen. Well, what else? Um. Yeah. So that's that. I think for Peggy, interestingly enough, for Peggy, and I'm not sure if this counts as a pitch exactly, her pivot yep. for the hard days work. Uh, ad over the mm-hmm. phone is fucking genius. Mm-hmm. Like to be able to assess the need to change the demographic because of the client's needs and to come up with it on the spot with the whole lady godiver yep. thing is absolutely mm. like I you know that's that's like generational talent. Honestly, to be able to do that kind of like on the spot, uh, I fucking mm. love that. I think that Ginsburg had a lot of really solid pitches. That everybody yeah, just kind was... of tramples on because he's not a main character. Yeah, he was he was really underrated. He was like a really solid admin that was just in a company full of great admin. Yeah, yeah. And women. Yeah. Um, I think Don's Beljolie ad for the lipstick, oh. uh pitch for the lipstick was great. Yes. Um, the definition of um big dick energy. That's, <laughs> that's, that was what Don did there, you know. Yeah. You know, he he Clients weren't buying his pitch. They had their own vision for it. But, you know, we, we've all worked with clients, right? Yeah. And clients always hire you for their expertise. And then in the end, they're just going to do whatever they want. So why bother hiring you, right? And Don is just fucking fed up with this. He does what I've always wanted to do. He just stands up. Yeah. And he says it in a more eloquent way than I could ever, <laughs> like, phrase it. I mean, he says that, um, what, uh, why should I waste my time with non-believers? You're non-believers. Why should we why should we be wasting time with Kabuki? Yeah. Which is an insane line, and everybody looks at him like, "What the fuck are you doing, bro?" Yeah. And, and because at that point in time, so I also didn't understand what Don was doing. Yeah. You know? And and what a line! Why should we be waste time with Kabuki? And it just confused everyone, and it allowed him to just delve deeper in what he was saying. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Um, Peggy's uh, Burger Chef uh, pitch oh, was I was I think her carousel. Yes. Where she manages to. Uh, make this really emotional, impassioned argument for a fast food joint yeah. as a place where families can come together because they're competing with the TV. What a way to frame it, yeah. you know? Yeah, her, 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 the, the way that she sold it, the way that she said, you know, like, this is, the, this is your real competition in your living room. Like, whose living room doesn't have a television? And when you're all eating dinner, aren't you all watching TV? Yeah. If you want to connect, where do you go? Come to Burger Chef, you know, this is where families are. Yeah. Wild. And but it was a great pitch too. Um... um Megan, there was a pitch that it was. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Megan's pitch for for Heinz beans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was there was what I was about to say. Oh, Heinz. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Heinz. Uh, Megan's pitch for Heinz beans was. I mean, not she didn't get to pitch it, but like the idea in it of itself, brilliant. Like again, mm-hmm. like for all intents and purposes, like Megan is like a, a Shakespeare heroine in the most tragic of senses. Uh, yeah, you know, and obviously a nod to to her wanting to act and all of that. But she does have talent, like very, very honestly. She is shown to have like the spark of something that could really make her stand mm. out in the industry that Peggy recognizes as well. Uh, her yep. only mistake was pairing Don. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of women's mistakes were either being associated with Dawn or marrying Dawn, yeah. you know. Um, absolutely true. Uh, yeah, those are... In fact, I actually think like Dawn's eventual campaign, the minimalist one, you know, yeah. where they... was actually a really great idea that was rejected by some very um, short-sighted um, <laughs> Heinz execs, yeah. you know. But, you know, some, some, sometimes clients are that way, like, they just don't see. Oh, yeah. They want, they, they want what they paid for, so they want more, you yeah. know, but sometimes less is more. Absolutely. And that was Dawn's, I think, one of his most innovative pitches. Yeah. Of a, of a whole minimalist ad. And of course, you know, the first episode, the Lucky Strike pitch was the thing that sold us on the show. Yes. Uh, that was really great. It's toasted. Um, uh, yeah, so many great moments in Mad Men. I, uh, I don't know if that's a sorry. pitch necessarily, but like when when Don and Don and Roger go into uh, Dow Chemical and he gives the, sp- yeah. the speech on happiness, I don't think that's a pitch necessarily, but man, like just going in there, standing up, saying what he says and walking out, right? The whole yep. idea like... What is happiness but the moment before you need more happiness, right? Is like mm. amazing, right? The delivery of that, the 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 tone in which that he delivered is completely understanding his place uh, and the appeal to emotion and logic that he needs to succeed at and understanding the demographic of the people, the audience in front of him. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Masterful. Absolutely masterful. Yeah, and he delivers the motto of the show also. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, let's move on to our outro here where we'll talk about some of the recommendations, um, some of the best stuff that you've seen this month. Okay. Uh, what have you seen this month that you maybe would like to shout out? Oh, man. Okay. Uh, I'm going to shout out. I'll be talking about this uh, later in the month as well for Anime Corner. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, but like, just like, you know, whoever's still listening at this point in time, I've, I have I recently binged this anime that came out uh, in entirety on Netflix called Kotaro Lives Alone. Um, mm. Oh, my God. I am so fucking blown away by that. It it had one of those things where like the animation style or the art style didn't really get me, uh, reminding me a bit of like Ranking of Kings that I didn't really like the animation style at first. Uh, right. And it's like this absurd premise where a four-year-old boy kind of like moves into one of those like two-story, you know, seven tatami mat uh, apartment buildings by himself, right? And okay. kind of like ends up with a found family of the random and strange people who live in that apartment building. Mm. and then it is hilariously funny because of the premise but at the same time it is one of the most quietly heartbreaking anime that I've ever watched and the Mm -hmm. balance between like the kind of dark humor slash slapstick combined with the thematic exploration of like childhood trauma abuse and abandonment is Mm. mind-blowingly good so so Sweet. good i finished everything in a single sitting uh despite nice. the fact that i had work to do just because like i needed to see where it went right i needed to see mm. what kind of exploration was actually possible and then later on i found out that there was an actually a live action that came out uh earlier that was based right. on the manga um that i hadn't watched uh so i haven't watched okay. the, the thing but like there's something about the strangeness of the anime and the some of the things they can get away with that was like yep. whew, so good, so so good. Um, that's one that's of the awesome. stand for me is this month. Nice, nice. Um, anything else? Oh no, I I think a lot of my time has been spent like kind of catching up with Mad Men. Uh, especially nice, the last awesome. Season. Okay, sweet. Okay. Um, yeah, this actually wasn't on my recommendations also, but I recently caught an, caught an anime called Kids on the Slope, uh, Ooh. which is about um uh, a classical pianist in secondary school i believe who gets into the jazz scene yeah. in a in a new town that he moves to it's great i've never seen it before never even heard of it but um 
I was listening to jazz on YouTube and, you know, one of those like autoplay mixes things, you know? Yeah. Then I heard, I heard like a jazz tune from the show I had never heard. It's from the OST of Kids on the Slope. I downloaded Kids on the Slope. That's how I watched it. Yeah. Um, so, so thanks, YouTube, for your, <laughs> rando- your, your, your random algorithm while I was listening to Miles Davis. You, I got onto Kids on the Slope thanks to you. Um, okay, so I'm going to separate my recs according to TV and film. Okay, cool. Uh, film number one, uh, most important rec is The Worst Person in the World, which is now showing at the projector. Yeah. Uh, best film of 2022, in my opinion. Um, about a lost, about millennial anxieties, about uh, a woman who just doesn't know what to do, indecision. Yeah. Um, on on the same idea as that as well. It's also like if you want to watch another movie about a Norwegian woman who is saddled with the challenges of adulthood, the pressures of unwanted motherhood. Uh-huh. It's another movie called Ninja Baby, which is almost. Sim- very similar to the worst person in the world and yet of equal quality and Ooh. presented in a very different way. Uh, Nin- Ninja Baby is about a woman very similar to the main character of the worst person in the world except that she's a comic book illustrator. Uh, one fine day, she realizes that she's six months pregnant. Um, too late for an abortion. Just realized it one day. You know, She's one of those like, just never realized she was pregnant. Uh, so she draws a character called Ninja Baby, uh, a representative of the fetus that snuck out in her, mm-hmm. and has frequent conversations with this animated character uh, who is just telling her all the time that she's making terrible love choice, uh, life choices. Yeah. Um, so yeah, number one is the worst person in the world. Must, must catch. Ninja Baby is, you could catch it, but the worst person in the world is a better version of that film. Interesting. Uh, okay. R- Red Rocket is coming out next month. It's yeah. a new film by Sean Baker, who we've talked about his previous film, uh, The Florida Project, before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red Rocket is new, it's by him, it's similar in his style, it's about a washed up dirtbag asshole porn star who is so broke that he has to move back to his Texas hometown and hustle for money. Yeah. Um, it's actually really fun to watch, but also this guy is such a sleazebag that it makes you feel icky. Mm-hmm. Um, Flea, also showing at the projector, is also really good. It is an animated memoir, memoir um, Persepolis style, yeah. uh, telling the story of an Afghan child refugee and his escape from uh, Kabul when the Taliban took over back in the 2000s. Uh, Writing with Fire is another great documentary also at the projector. Yeah. Uh, highly recommended too. It's about India's only women-run newspaper and not only are they women facing discrimination and persecution in a very patriarchal society, mm-hmm. all these women happen to come from the Dalit class. If you're not aware of the caste system in India, Dalits are one of the bottom, if not the very bottom of the caste system. Uh, so they have that dual edge of persecution there. Uh, finally, my recommendations for film is The Souvenir Part 2, which is a sequel to a film called The Souvenir. The Souvenir follows, uh, is, is written and directed by a filmmaker called Joanna Hag, mm-hmm. who wrote a movie in 2019 about her experiences in film school, particularly about a painful period where she fell in love with a heroin junkie and was always, almost ruined by that. So that's The Souvenir Part 1. Um, the civilian part two follows the aftermath of that relationship. And what does the main character do? She decides to make a movie called The Souvenir. <laughs> so The Souvenir Part Two is the making of Souvenir Part One. Um, interesting take on it, and I really loved it. Uh, final recommendation for film side is a documentary called Lucy and Desi. Mm-hmm. If you've seen Being the Ricardos, um, Aaron Sorkin's abysmal new film about um, um, I, Love, I Love Lucy stars uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Uh, Watch this instead. This is Amy Poehler's documentary about Lucy and Desi's real life, their professional relationship, the art they meet together, the family that they that came together and fell apart. Um, 
a great love letter to the two important pioneers in Hollywood entertainment, particularly at the, in the 40s and 50s when Desi Arnaz, a Cuban immigrant, and Lucille Ball, a woman, became the two biggest stars in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, great breakdown about their professional and personal legacies. On the TV side of things, My Brilliant Friend is back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've talked about My Brilliant Friend a lot. I feel it's one of the best TV shows on air right now. It continues to be one of the greatest shows on air in season three. It takes place in the 1970s now. So the girls are in their late 20s slash early 30s in the show. They have families. They have become mothers. It's a very different show now because they're adults. Um, and I do have to say that the two girls who play Leila and Lenu, who are 18 and 19 respectively, do a hell of a job convincing me that they were in their 30s because I actually legitimately believe that they were in their 30s. Yeah? Uh, I had to look up that they were still 18 and 19 and they are still 18 and 19 here. So good job on makeup, good job on the performances. Better Things is back for its final season now. Uh, fantastic show, as always. Pamela Adlon's dramedy about mothers and daughters continues to be one of the most low-key hangout delights that you can find. It's available on Disney Plus in Singapore. Uh, State of the Union is actually really, really great. Also, season two is out now on Sundance TV. It is a drama slash comedy series. I guess it's a dramedy. Uh, the main hook of State of the Union is that each episode is only eight minutes long uh it's 10 minutes uh it's 10 episodes with eight minutes so it's less than a movie go check it out every season follows a different couple as they go through therapy and work out why their marriage is in dissolution finally on the tv side is pachinko which is probably gonna end up being i think my number one show of the year uh but it's hard to say at the moment but pachinko is based on minjindi's amazing historical novel which follows four generations of a korean family beginning in the early 1900s pre-world war ii under japanese occupation all the way to the 1980s following her great great grandchild solomon as he becomes the owner of a pachinko parlor in japan so yeah those are those are all the recommendations for this month uh we will be back in a couple of weeks yep. for the next genre. But in the meantime, you know, go check out Worst Person in the World, My Brilliant Friend, Better Things, Pachinko especially, <laughs> is, is very, very important. Um, read the book and watch the show also when it comes to an Apple TV+. Plus. Um, My Brilliant Friend, Pachinko is actually weirdly similar because they are adaptations of very beloved novels mm-hmm. or series of novels, but end up being just as good, which is very rare. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back with genre where we'll talk about a lot of good things actually. Like I'm I'm over the past few months I haven't been very excited by genre inequality because there aren't a lot of good things to talk about. Yeah. But I'm quite excited this month. Uh and none of them are the Batman, uh weirdly. Enough, so. <laughs> we would definitely dive into that uh as our we'll, we'll, talk, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Batman for sure, but like I'm, that's the least of like my excitement for like there are other better things than a Batman. And I think, you know, I saw some of my Twitter mentions, some people are quite upset that I don't like Book of Boba Fett or Demon Slayer or things like that. Yeah. Boy, wait to wait to tell you that Turning Red is better than the Batman. Oh, <laughs> that's, yeah. Let's see what we get there. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, what are you most excited to talk about for the next? Oh genre? man. Uh. Uh. Okay. I'm interested to talk about the Batman just like in terms of its place within oh. the Batman law, but Definitely. not yes, as yes, yes. A, a film in and of itself, right? Like yeah. we will pick it apart, right? And I'm sure I'm very keen to hear what Hardy has to say as well. Uh, mm. that for sure um, I'm excited to talk about the Jujutsu Kaisen movie which I managed to catch 
Uh, yeah, out now on EGV, by the way. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, I think it's uh, it opens up a lot of possibilities, uh, and we'll dive into whether or not it's worth catching in cinemas itself. Yeah, um, I really really liked Upload season two. I liked it a lot. Turning Red is my favorite film of the month so far. Yep. Um, sorry, Doctor Strange, but I think Michelle Yeoh has you beat in the multiverse movie Ooh. because everything, everywhere, all at once is the most bonkers thing I've ever said. Um, I will say in my review though, like later on, I'll go in depth about this. Yeah. I admire the ingenuity of nearly every scene and every frame of it. Wow. Sometimes it gets a bit. Sometimes it gets a bit too much. Yeah. Um, it, it's novelty to the point of exhaustion. Uh, and I'll delve into like the ups and downs of that as well. Uh. Um, DMZ is another thing that I want you guys to watch and then listen to our review of. DMZ is based on you know that comic book that Brian Woods created back in the early 2000s. Uh, uh, yeah. It's, it's about America after a second civil war and now Manhattan is a demilitarized zone. Um, what seemed um, absolutely fantastical in the early 2000s now seem almost... Uh, seems almost inevitable in 2022 and it's quite a scary watch yeah. so uh, check that out and we'll talk about much more including uh, uh, The Boys as an animated spin-off called Diabolical mm-hmm. which is fairly decent in a Star Wars Visions kind of way okay. uh, and a lot of other things I saw Anime Corner we'll be talking about uh, My Dress Up Darling and the anime that we just talked yeah. about uh, yeah lots of stuff um, Human Resources is a Big Mouth spin-off that I'm quite excited to talk about too uh-huh. Uh, till next time, guys. This has been Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, goodbye. No.